Geopolitics and Empire is joined by a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, William I. Robinson. Among other books, he's the author of The Global Police State and uh, the forthcoming Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic. Professor Robinson, bienvenido y gracias por acompañarme. Pues, eh, gracias a ti. Yeah, it's, uh, thanks. We'll do this in English, I, I guess. We, we can do it both uh, in Spanish, but we'll, we'll, for the English-speaking uh, audience, um, you know, your work on the global police state, uh, as well as your new book on the global civil war we find ourselves in, is uh, astounding. And, you know, we now have a global elite class attempting to use technology to bring us all back to the medieval times. Uh, but before we get to, you know, COVID-1984 in your new book, as I like to call it, COVID-1984, we should talk about your uh, previous book, Global Police State, which kind of sets the stage. Uh, for decades, I've been observing the construction of this police state more and more. Uh, you know, many of us are coming up against this police state. I was recently banned from PayPal together with Mint Press and Consortium News, uh, likely by the DHS and its new Ministry of Truth, which today uh, they, they say they've paused uh, you know, the rollout of the Disinformation Governance Board. Governments are, are militarizing. Tanks and weapons used in the Iraq war are being given to local police departments in the U.S. Even here in Mexico, there's militarization. The EU wants to read everyone's emails and messenger chats and on and on it goes. So as you see it, you know, what, what's what's going on in the world, is including, you know, with this development of, of a global police state? Right. Well, the backdrop to all of this, the backdrop to global police state, the backdrop to what's going on in Ukraine, actually the backdrop to the pandemic, to everything that we're going to discuss in this interview is the severe, really unprecedented crisis of global capitalism. We speak about um, three in, 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 in political economy, we speak about three types of crises. One is cyclical. That's the business cycle. We go into recessions every 10, year, 10 years. It works almost like clockwork. Uh, but then we have a deeper crisis, which is what I call a structural crisis. And we see these about once every 40 to 50 years. And what we mean by structural is the only way that capitalism can get out of this crisis is by a fundamental restructuring of how it's how it's organized, how it, how it works. Uh, so we had a previous type of social democratic or social welfare or Keynesian capitalism mid 20th century. We had the we had the big structural crisis of the 1930s. Before that, there was a big structural crisis of the 1870s to 1880s. Then there was the big structural crisis of the 1970s, which brought us to this era of capitalist globalization and neoliberalism. So the next big crisis hits with the global financial collapse of 2008, and that crisis is continuing and deepening. It was not resolved after 2008, and it was in intensified by the pandemic and now in the post-pandemic uh, period. Um, but there's a, so it's a deep structural crisis that global capitalism is in. But we're in, but we're in really, the, for me, the third type of crisis, which is systemic. And why I, I distinguish a systemic crisis from structural is a, a systemic crisis is one in which the only way to get out of the crisis is to create a new system entirely. So I don't think capitalism can get out of the crisis it's in. That doesn't mean it's about to collapse. I wish that were the case. But what it means is that I don't, I see years and decades of turmoil and crisis ahead of us. I don't think we're going to have a stabilized situation in the near future. But anyway, that's the larger backdrop for understanding the rise of a global police state, which I'll speak to in just a moment, and also for discussing the global civil war, which we are in. Um, so what I mean by global police state are three things. Uh, and in the context of a response to this acute crisis of global capitalism, the first is that, and I'll get into a little bit of data here, there are un 
unprecedented inequality. Simply, we've never seen the level of inequality, the level of exclusion and marginality, the level of oppression and exploitation around the world as we do today. And the, these acute inequalities it, uh, require the ruling groups to impose uh, extreme violence, extreme forms of social control and containment. That's the first dimension of global police state. And I'll go into that in just a moment. The second dimension is that this crisis of global capitalism, well, there's two dimensions, two, well, it's an ecological crisis, of course, which means that it's existential. But putting that aside, there's two key things. There's a structural or an economic crisis, a chronic stagnation, what technically we call overaccumulation. I'll come back to that in just a minute. And the other is the political crisis of global capitalism, meaning a crisis of state legitimacy. The majority of people around the world no longer consider the, the, their states, their governments to represent them. They, all states are, are considered illegitimate by masses of people. And the crisis of capitalist hegemony. And they go into a lot of detail on that in global civil war, this political crisis. Um, uh, but I, I want to say here that then the second dimension of global police state, because the first is that extreme repression is needed and extreme social control is needed in the face of this acute inequality and immiseration. The second dimension of global police state is that it becomes in the face of chronic stagnation, incredibly profitable to invest in war, in conflicts, in systems of transnational uh, social control. I'll go into some data on that because it's absolutely shocking, but let me say something about the first dimension. Um, Many listeners are going to be familiar with this data. 1% of humanity currently controls 52% of the world's wealth. 20% of humanity, one in every five people, and that's that sector which can at least try to survive in the new global capitalism. And that 20% is shrinking to 15 12%. Um, controls 95% of the world's wealth. That means that 80% of humanity, the vast majority of humanity, has only 5% of the world's wealth. And this Inequality has been accelerating exponentially since 2008, since the collapse of 2008, and then a new increase in inequality through and during the pandemic. The International Labor Organization tells us that one third of, the, of, of humanity is unemployed, structurally marginalized. Two billion people try to scratch out a living in the informal sector. And then among those that do have employment, 1.3 billion of those workers are, are working in precarious situations. This is the rise of precarization. So we have 3.5, 3.6 billion people are either locked out or under working under extremely uh, precarious um, circumstances with uncertain um, survival. So these unprecedented equalities can only be sustained by extreme violence, militarization, and repression. And that's this first dimension of um, of global police state. So if we're all familiar with this, what actually does global police state look, look like? Um, it spans these new modalities of policing, of repression, and also, because I know we'll get into this when we talk about Global Civil War, the new book, because that book is all about um, digitalization and the digital transformation of global capitalism and what that implies. But the global police state is made possible by these new technologies, and they include the systems of mass incarceration, uh, real wars, hot wars, the US invading Iraq, but also all these bogus wars, the bogus war on terrorism, bogus war on drugs, wars on immigrants, uh, immigrant detention and deportation regimes, which are spreading all over the world, not just in the US and Europe, although that's the leading edge, refugee control systems, and there are currently 300 
uh, million refugees around the world is going to go way up as the crisis deepens. Border walls and containment walls. We know the U.S.-Mexico border wall, but actually there are over 70 border walls all around the world, and they're going up every day to either lock in or keep out um, unwanted populations. Mass systems of mass surveillance and tracking, and that's a big theme of global civil war because that's the digital application that makes that possible. Militarized urban policing power military and private armies and security forces. And then there's direct and structural violence, such as the intensification of, of mass debt, debt, and then, um, and then debt collection, violent and state uh, debt collection. There's, we increasingly see the blurring of military and civil, the boundaries between military and civilian forms of the global police state, the, blurring the boundaries between active war zones and urban civilian theaters. It's the megacities of the world that is ground zero for a global police state. Uh, I don't know how much detail you'd like me to speak about, but here's some dramatic data. You interrupt if I'm going into too much detail. Um, 140 countries passed these so-called anti-terrorism wars after 2000 uh, and, and one. And almost in all cases, they are still in place and they allow for these glo this global police state. Um, in California, where you're interviewing me, I'm here in Los Angeles, um, there's no less than 592 laws restricting standing, sitting, resting, sleeping, panhandling, food sharing uh, in public spaces. So this is a way in which global police state now increasingly controls our public spaces. And of course, that's aimed at the marginalized population surplus humanity, um, getting them out of sight, uh, but it's also aimed at the left and of popular and mass rebellion and mobilizations because it's a way of further controlling public space. And now with digitalization, that has been greatly uh, in, uh, enhanced. So that's some of the dimensions of the this first aspect of global police state, which is this incredible intensification of uh, systems of transnational repression and social control. But here's the second dimension, which people are less aware of, and it's equally uh, important. And it's how global police state is unbelievably profitable. And this is what I, at a time of stagnation in the global economy, this is what I call militarized accumulation or accumulation by repression. And we know that the events of September 11 of 2001 led to this much more sweeping militarization of the global economy and society. We've been living in a global war economy. What Ukraine, Ukraine conflict has deepened the global war economy. It's deepened militarized accumulation. Um, so the Pentagon budget increased from 1998 to 2011 by 98%, nearly a duplication of that budget. Worldwide, between 2001 and 2022, the global military state spending uh, doubled. And now as well, it's over $2 trillion. But this doesn't include state secret budgets, police and intelligence budgets, homeland security budgets, but even more significantly, because if we included those, we're talking about $2.5 trillion or more. But it doesn't include private corporate spending on global uh, police state, mercenary firms. Um, let, let me um, 
give you some of this data. In 2018, what we call private military firms, and these are private for-profit companies, basically mercenary companies, and they're deployed all around the world. They participate in hot wars and low-intensity wars in systems of repression. They fuse together with state repression. Um, they defend corporate profit, prof, uh, uh, property, etc. There's these private military firms employed 15 million people worldwide in 2018. That's the year that my, I finished the research for my book. Um, private police and security forces number 20 million people worldwide. 20 million. That's in one half countries of the world, they outnumber public police forces. The biometrics industry, which is it's the new biopolitical regime, which is emerging post, post COVID, in, um, is, was before the pandemic, valued at $35 billion, and it's exponentially growing in the wake of the um, pan pandemic. We now have 200 private prisons on all continents, and that number is rapidly expanding. Here's another piece of data. You know, I'm throwing out all of this data because it's shocking the extent to which the global economy and society has been militarized as a form of profit making, even when we put aside the issue of the need for the ruling groups to have social control. The European Union border security program spending increased by 3,688% between 2005 and 2016. And you might say, well, this is governments doing that, but this is global corporations running the, these border repression uh, 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 programs. There's also now a multi-billion dollar market for what's called global riot control systems. In fact, one intelligence unit uh, intelligence firm for private intelligence uh, reported, and this is in, in the book, uh, that, quote, there will be a dramatic rise in civil unrest all around the world, and this will generate demand, exponential increase in the demand for riot control uh, uh, systems. So this is some of the dimensions of how the whole global economy is completely militarized as a form of massive profit making. We want to remember that the war in Ukraine may be a tragedy for the people of Ukraine, for the people of Russia, actually for the world's people, for the world's working people. But it is an unbelievable bonanza for the military industrial complex and also for the global financial complex, which is tied uh, in with it. That's why, you know, I published an article very recently in which I'm quoting one executive representing the different, um, you know, the from the military industrial complex saying, complex saying, happy days are here again. This is just what we needed at a time when we were stagnating. It's an actual quote. Um, so let me just um, conclude. Well, let me stop there for the moment. That's a lot to, to swallow already. A message from our sponsors. It seems we're headed for economic collapse, a dystopian social credit system, even another world war. As a longtime expat myself, I've secured multiple passports, getaway locations, foreign financial accounts, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. Mikhail Thorup of the Expat Money Show can help you do the same and become great reset proof. He's hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim your freedom in a time of upheaval and uncertainty by moving your life, business, and wealth offshore. Themes include securing your Plan B safe haven, offshore banking, decentralized finance, second passports, and much more. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy eating bug burgers in your smart city. If you do find yourself stuck in a smart city, the Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank 
that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in English and Spanish, so hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the Castro Society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. Yeah, I, I, and I would just add, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Todd Miller, who really writes on the, the border security complex, as he calls it. He's been on Geopolitics and Empire. And I'll be talking to him on my TNT program uh, in, in a week or so. But he basically says, yeah, that these uh, it's more most evident in Europe and, and the U.S., these border control regimes. But the U.S., this border security complex is sending money to all different countries around the world and building this global, you know, as you say, police state. But they're helping the other countries build these very highly controlled highly technological border systems and it's going to prevent people as you say like the uh the, the impoverished you know from moving you know in and out of of countries right. only like the wealthy will be able to to cross uh borders uh, and as well it's like in canada now we've seen these these protests now you have to ask for a permit a permission to to protest which before i'm like in a democratic you know republic you don't need a you know a permit to, to protest now as you say it's just it's getting crazier and and crazier and you know i i guess we could then start to talk about this biopolitical regime in your new book uh you've cited keys vanderpil the dutch academic who's been on my program he talks about this biopolitical regime we've got uh philosophers uh, the italian uh, giorgio agamben and, and many others who have different names for this right this like biosecurity state, this technocracy. Um, I, I've looked at this topic with guests from, from many different angles. The elites have dubbed it the Great Reset, you know, the Fourth Industrial Revolution. <laughs> it's, it's, it's dystopian. Uh, you know, they want to create this digital concentration camp, you know, basically put us into a video game where we gain points by doing what they want or lose points if we don't do what they want. A social credit system or algorithm ghetto, uh, you know, founded upon a cashless society, uh, you know, so, th so this system can lock out or put into the algorithm ghetto anyone they deem undesirable for whatever reason. Uh, you know, my Patreon was canceled. PayPal, Spotify, and YouTube are deleting my content. People are being put on no-fly lists just for thought crimes. Banks are closing people's accounts. Uh, Airbnb and Uber are, are closing people's accounts, which means no mobility, no roof under your head. So it, it's really getting crazy. Uh, you know, could you then you know give us your take on this digital aspect that that we're um, they're trying to move us into? Yes. Yeah. Uh, they're thrusting us into it. Um, well, let me, because it's a giant topic. So let's unpack a little bit of this. Let me say that I guess we're turning to my new book, um, Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic, which is really um, the centerpiece of that is how global capitalism is being, um, how digitalization is leading to this dramatic restructuring and transformation of global capitalism, a heightening of the global police state. Um, uh, but let me say that there are four dimensions in this book. One is the crisis of global capitalism. We've spoken about that already because that's, again, the backdrop to all of this. Uh, the second dimension is the pandemic and how the ruling group seized upon the pandemic to intensify uh, profit making and, uh, and control and to impose this new biopolitical regime. 
The third dimension is the actual nitty gritty of how this digitalization is unfolding and what are its implications. And the fourth, because I want to go back to the title of the book is Global Police State, is that the ruling groups are not omnipotent. They're not all powerful. On the contrary, they are responding to the mass revolt from below. And they're terrified by that revolt. And so they're responding by intensifying systems of surveillance and control. And that's where the both the pandemic and digitalization come into the picture. But so let's break some of this down. Again, I'm a professor and we professors have a tendency to talk too much. So you interrupt me when, um, when you want to move on, but let's start with digitalization here. What's going on? We have this emerging post-pandemic capitalist paradigm and we're seeing a massive new round of major restructuring and transformation based on a much more advanced digitalization of the entire global economy and society. So let's step back a minute and let me go back to the issue of crises, because I was speaking about the crisis of the 1870s, the crisis of the 1930s, the crisis of the 1970s. The story here starts in the 1970s. Capitalism went into a crisis. I won't go into more details about that, but capital responded to that crisis and also to the mass uprisings of the 1960s and 70s by going global, by launching globalization. And they were able to do that by introducing the first round of, of, um, of, this, of this digital technology, which is computers, and and um and the internet and that allowed in the in the late 20th century into the early 21st century it allowed the ruling groups to launch ne- the neoliberal counter revolution capitalist globalization to put into place a new globally integrated system of production finance and services controlled by the giant global corporations and by what i call the transnational capitalist class every country in the world has been integrated often violently into this new globalized system uh, but now, accelerating with 2008, and then more accelerating during the pandemic, we have a second generation of digital-based technologies that's leading to yet again another wave of restructuring, uh, and has a ha- promises to have profound transformative effects on the global economy, society, and polity, and every person on the planet. So, uh, um. And and so we're familiar with this, uh, the the technology, but I want to run through it anyway. We have um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, Then we have, as everyone has been noting, big data, the collection, processing, and analysis of immense amounts of data, which means the datafication of the global economy. Remember, this data is controlled by transnational capital, by the transnational capitalist class, which allows it now that mass amount of data. Everything is datafied on the planet. It allows the ruling groups to use algorithms for new forms of control, new forms of profit making, new nightmare scenarios. Then we have the Internet of Things, and we have blockchain technology, and that Blockchain technology is leading to something which is just coming online now, digital currencies. Um, We can debate whether it was right-wing, whether it was progressive, whatever it was that happened at the U.S.-Canada border with the the truckers blocking that, uh, uh, um, blocking the, the, the border. But here's the thing. The Canadian government responded by freezing the bank accounts of those people, meaning you could, they could not go to the ATM and withdraw any cash. But that is just the beginnings of this new digital currency, which is just coming online now in the sense that governments can instantly freeze and control who has money and who doesn't have money. We then have automation and robotization, and that's accelerating dramatically, and that has profound implications for uh, everyone on the planet. We have nano and biotechnology, given a giant boost by the 
uh, pandemic, of course, involving uh, big pharma and the medical industrial complex. We have 3D printing. Uh, we have quantum and cloud computing and the 5G network. Those are important because all these new technologies need quantum cloud computing and 5G network. We have augmented reality, virtual reality. Of course, we all know about um, autonomously driven land, air, and sea uh, uh, vehicles. So the point here is that what we're seeing with all of these new technologies is they come online. And as the profound changes are now unfolding, driven by this digitalization, is we have a fusion with this new generation of technologies, of uh, a, a fusion of new technologies that blur the lines between the physical world, the digital world, and the biological world. And you know, so you have this new basis for its biopolitical regimes of control. What happened in the pandemic, it allowed the transnational capitalist class to consolidate its grip on the global economy, especially this new block of capital, which really became hegemonic during the pandemic, bringing together three wings of the of transnational capital. One is um, the military industrial complex. The second, of course, are the giant tech companies, which are now at the very core of the global economy. The tech companies are all powerful. They've got tentacles everywhere. They're at the commanding heights here. And then the third is the global financial conglomerates. And by the way, um, just 17 global financial conglomerates, and those conglomerates bring together all the different sectors of capital. They control, just 17 of them, $41 trillion, which is more than half of the entire global economy, 17 conglomerates. But so you have this new nexus emerging, what I call the Silicon Valley Wall Street Pentagon nexus. That's the new block of dominant capital. Um, and... Um, let me go into a little more detail on the digitalization. Again, you cut me off when I'm uh, talking too much, and all of this is in the book. But um, you have this exponential growth. The so-called sharing economy jumped from $14 billion in 2014 to $350 billion currently. Uh, worldwide shipments of 3D printers jumped from 450,000 in 2016 to nearly 7 million by 2020, and it's going to go into the um, tens of millions in the following years. Global, let me just conclude that this that part of data with this. Um, global internet protocol traffic. Okay. That is technical term, a proxy for data flows. That is how we all connected now digitally. It grew from 100 gigabytes per day in 1992 to more than 45,000 gigabytes per second in 2017, and it's expected to surpass 150 gigabytes per second by the end of the year we are in now. In 2019, there were 5.2 billion smartphones uh, on the planet. Uh, at this point, 60% of the entire world's population is now linked into the internet, and that's going to approach, it's going to continue to approach to 100%. Uh, um, so what happens with the pandemic now? The pandemic comes along, and I still want to talk about that in this biopolitical regime. Let me just conclude with the digitalization, and we can go right into that. That the pandemic has turbocharged this digitalization. It's accelerated converting more and more areas of the global economy and society into digital realms. And it's vastly expanding labor-rich digital services, telework arrangements, drone delivery, automated uh, everything's automated, but it's also restructuring the very nature of work. It's going to lead to uh, more 
massive expansion of the ranks of surplus humanity, those that are structurally marginalized. It's leading to a reorganization uh, or uh, a restructuring of the labor process for those of us who still have work. So we're locked into new digital realms or we are de-skilled uh, de -skilled and, uh, and, and cheapened. There's enormous implications for the vast majority of humanity when these uh, technologies are uh, applied. I'll conclude this point so we can go to the pandemic and the biopolitical regime. Um, that we are seeing this accelerated process of automation on these new technologies. Now, why is it taking place? Well, the transnational capitalist class has two big objectives. The biggest, the thing that drives it, is to maximize profit. Nothing else but that. Maximize profit. And that requires controlling rebellion against that profit making and exploitation from below. But it specifically requires lowering wages and intensifying the control over labor. And so the first generation of globalization involved moving manufacturing to low wage zones, everything we're all familiar with. Uh, but it also involved raising productivity because if you have a hundred workers with you know X productivity, you can eliminate 50 of them by in massively in introducing machinery and raising productivity. Um, so that's unbelievably accelerated by the current um, restructuring uh, taking place. And what makes this unique, and I'll conclude this point so we can move right into the uh, uh, pandemic, is earlier waves of technological development in the modern history of capitalism involved whole sectors of the economy uh, becoming obsolete. For instance, we before the cars, before we had cars, we had Horses, an industry which had to make carriages, but especially horses, horseshoes, horse rearing, horse maintenance. And that involved millions of people around the world working in that. So we switched from horse-based transportation to automobile-based transportation. And so you have a massive shift in workers of people from, from the horse-based transportation to the car-based transformation. So the neoliberals tell us now that with this new technology, we're all going to have, you know, great high-paid, high-skilled, knowledge-based work, and that's what's going to happen, but actually not what's going to happen. We have algorithms now. We're in a totally new situation of machine learning and automatic uh, uh, artificial intelligence, which involves pattern recognition and complex communication. This involves then two impacts on workers. Those that do manual work, such as in factories, uh, are have been and are going to increasingly be automated. But not just there, in fast food, in agriculture, in construction, in mining, in warehouse. And all of this was accelerated pandemic. I'd like to give one example because it's so revealing. You have, um, in California is a big uh, Big agriculture. Agriculture is the number one earner in California. It's a global breadbasket. And then you have large-scale agriculture in Italy. I use these two examples because they're so revealing. And in both these cases, during the pandemic, either immigrants were not allowed in, they were not allowed to go out into the fields to pick um, the grapes and, and the vegetables and the fruits and so forth, or the immigrants didn't go because of fear of contagion. So the growers in both Italy and in California, sort of reflecting this, this pattern, uh, turned to automated pickers, the, the machines picking grapes, machines uh, picking vegetables, machines picking strawberries. 
So if even what you would expect to need the most labor-intensive and not susceptible to automation was being rapidly automated during the pandemic, this is across the board. Mining, there are still millions of miners around the world. But if you go to one of the modern mines now, there's more machinery than there is uh, human beings. So that's the one part of it, that that, that manual labor is either um, is simply automated out of the process. Um, and then the other is professional or knowledge-based or white-collar labor. And you'd think, oh, no, they're going to benefit from all of this. But that's not true. Again, because of pattern recognition and complex communication, the nature of this new technology, a lot of the work that lawyers do, professors, financial analysts, doctors, journalists, accountants, insurance underwriters, librarians, uh, all of us also, we can either be de-skilled or simply replaced by machines. And, you know, look at it like this. I'm a professor. So we had over the last 30, 40 years, the shift to adjunct professors that don't have tenure, don't have any job stability. And seven out of every 10 courses in the United States is taught by adjuncts, which make uh, basically poverty wages. So that was the first generation of globalization. But now we all started teaching by Zoom uh, online. And many universities also required that we record that and post our lectures. So we're moving towards a situation where we're also even university classes is moving towards a model in which professors are um, are digitalized out of their profession. Um, so that's what we're seeing, this de-skilling and fragmentation of, uh, uh, of labor. And I'll just conclude this with this point. The pandemic served as a dry run right, for how digitalization is going to allow the dominant groups to step up the restructuring of time and space and exercise greater control over the global working class. Uh, and that brings us to the topic of the pandemic and the biopolitical sort of just building up to that and they didn't get to it but would you like me to launch into that or uh, that's funny i was literally going to read that quote uh that you just said i had it uh uh written down i, I picked that out of your your book uh i was just going to mention that yes now we're moving to this new economy that they want us in it's like gig work that's extremely precarious um as you said telework uh, i mean i've worked as a professor and and i can see it now i've had mexican friends tell me here that they lost their jobs at the at the university because you know whereas before you would have you know one professor with 30 students uh this university can just get rid of a bunch of professors and have one professor record an online module for 100 students uh, and then after that, even get rid of that professor. So it's like it's Coursera, basically. And students just go online and take these courses and you don't even need professors. And, you know, maybe in the future, AI and stuff can can do these courses. Um, and, you know, I, I thought as well during the pandemic, you know, I'll, I'll, I refer to it as the Great Reset. I, I think the lockdowns, in my opinion, were that that they were intentional and their purpose was to wipe out the middle class because they locked down small businesses but you know amazon and and um walmart and all these big box stores could stay open costco exactly. but everyone else like i i viewed it as um this class as you say intentionally wiping out the competition the small businesses just to to keep their monopoly um and I also wanted to ask you about, um, I've heard the term algocracy, rule by algorithm. Some some uh, elites have been talking about this system where we would be controlled by a world government surveillance state uh, run by algorithm. And maybe if you could comment on that, you mentioned briefly in your book, this, these transnational state apparatuses, um, which I guess we can also call IGOs, international governmental organizations. Uh, you say they're not to be confused with a global government. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that we are moving into world government with institutions that work in tandem, like World Bank, IMF, UN, EU. Uh, we've got this WHO pandemic treaty, which they're saying wants to take control of sovereign uh, nation states. Um, but, you know, a lot of these private interests are behind this. You, you've mentioned a big pharma, Wall Street, Davos, military industrial complex. What are your thoughts on, um, I don't know if you want to talk about it now or after the pandemic, but this idea of, you know, world government or transnational state apparatuses. Right. I've been writing about uh, transnational, what I call transnational state apparatuses since the, um, since the late 1990s. And I mean, at this point, there's no doubt whatsoever that the transnational capitalist class, let's talk about that for one moment. There are capitalists, small capitalists, medium-sized capitalists, and again, small capitalists have been millions wiped out by the pandemic because the incredible concentration and centralization of capital in the giant global corporations accelerated by the pandemic. But the leading heights of the capitalists worldwide is the transnational capitalist class. They don't recognize that they belong to particular nation states. They operate at a global level. And what they all share, these transnational capitalists around the world, is they want an open global economy where they can freely invest. And they've interpenetrated uh, across borders all over the world. Uh, so they have been organizing politically and they've been organizing in function of their profit making together across borders for the last 20, 25 years. And they link up with the leading um, political organizations of the transnational elite, including you mentioned some of them, the World Economic uh, Forum is really the, the nucleus of that political organization. So there absolutely is whether you want to call it a transnational state. Uh, the re I, what I say is that there's no single global government. That's one of the contradictions of global capitalism. You have over 200 um, so-called sovereign nation states, and then, and then you have a single integrated global economy, right? Um, but, um, and, and so we've seen these tr transnational state apparatuses and the transnational leading capitalist class intensifying their own coordination and, and you know during the pandemic. So maybe we will jump into uh, to that. I wanna start by saying that there's a big problem and the left has contributed to this. We cannot not critique the left with talking about the pandemic because when we challenge the official narrative, okay, we're labeled first as right-wing libertarians, as anti-vaxxers, as virus deniers. None of that is true when a leftist is critiquing um, the official narrative. Or we're labeled as conspiracy theorists. We are gaslighted. We're seeing that, of course. And uh, what's happened here is the only the official narrative is a narrative that has been defined and dictated by capital, especially big pharma, and by the capitalist states. And if we start to question that, we're gaslighted as conspiracy theorists and, and so forth. But so we, we want to say here the pandemic, um, it wasn't caused by co global capitalism directly, but it pulled back the veil of this global capitalist system that's been wrecking havoc on the poor majority. The pandemic turbocharged the digitally di driven restructuring that we've been speaking about. It opened up almost unfathomable opportunities for windfall profit-making, especially by big pharma, the military-industrial complex, big tech, and uh, big finance. Uh, Pfizer reported before the pandemic had between nine, seven, and 11, you know, the two, three years before the pandemic, between seven and $11 billion in profits annually. In 2021, they had $32 billion in profits. There's one company. So it was it went from 11 to $32 billion and revenues. They had $81 billion, just Pfizer in 2021. To put that into perspective, all spending on public education, 
in the United States at the federal level, the state level, and the local level is $124 billion in 2021. So that means just Pfizer had two-thirds of total educational spending in the United States. Um, So the origins of COVID remain in dispute. There's evidence of very strong evidence for gain of function properties. Now, I want to say here that I'm not, it's, this is, I am not denying, none of us should be denying that this is a real virus with deadly consequences. The issue is how the ruling groups define this pandemic and how they utilized it to intensify control and profit making. Uh, and this is not a conspiracy theory because it's widespread, it's no secret. The, the, the development in laboratories all over the world, private and, and public laboratories over the world of gain-of-function properties has been going on for several decades. They don't hide it. That's not that's not at all a secret. The reason they do this is because the, the pharma companies want to create, and capital and the capital states that they're linked with, want to create global vaccine markets because they're incredibly profitable. So they take what they, they imagine in three or five years, there might be this, um, this virus coming out of a, a bird, out of some bird in Asia. So we'll to gain a function properties on the virus in our laboratory, and then we'll develop a vaccine in our laboratory. Then when that virus, hopefully for the corporations that will, comes takes place, we'll already have the vaccine and we'll make billions in profit. So this gain of function has been going on for a long time. Um, but here's the thing. There's a lot of evidence that COVID was also, uh, is also gain of function uh, has gained a function properties. Uh, Luke Montague, who is the French virologist who discovered the HIV virus and then for it won the Nobel Prize in, in medicine, he already identified this gain of function uh, properties. And the there was a Freedom of Information Act that forced um, the emails of Fauci during the beginnings of the pandemic and the, and the CDC to be released. So those Freedom of Information Act exposed that what Fauci's right-hand man emailed him on the eve of the World Health Organization calling COVID a pandemic, declaring it as a pandemic, emailed him and said, "Uh uh-oh, Fauci, we're in trouble because I just reviewed the the data and this is gain-of-function properties. Now, this came out in a Freedom of Information Act as the email exchange. This is gain-of-function properties and it was made in Wuhan and we have helped finance the National Institute of Health and the CDC have been working with and helping finance the Wuhan lab. And so Fauci responded with damage control. So, but here's the thing. I'm not suggesting that this is an intentional pandemic. Um, But the point is that the drive for gain of function uh, and the drive to expand vaccine markets in order to make profit is part of the story of the uh, pandemic. Um, But I want to say that prior to COVID, the global vaccine market was valued at $40 dollars. And the challenge for big pharma, for the medical industrial complex, etc., was how do we dramatically expand that? And now the global vex, I mentioned 31 billion just in profits, just for Pfizer. So there's this exponential increase in the global vaccine uh, uh, market. Once the pandemic hit, um, these actors all came together to launch a particular response to the pandemic, one which would drive private property and intensification of social control. So you saw DARPA. DARPA is the uh, Pentagon's uh, research branch coming together with the pharmaceutical corporations, with the World Health Organization, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, with the World Economic Forum. They all came together to develop a vaccine. But prior to that, these same actors had been meeting for the last 
previous 20 years in a series of what they called scenarios. So here's where you get the, you know, the issue of the of a transnational state apparatus. And these scenarios in which they had get, literally games, just like you have war, the Pentagon has war games to imagine this is how the conflict will unravel, you know, will, will unfold. The, they had all of these scenarios or games in which they're imagining now we're in a pandemic. How are we going to deal with it? How are we going to control it? How are we going to respond? And so I just mentioned, you know, two of them going back to 2010, uh, Rockefeller Foundation and the, Bill, the, the Gates Foundation financed a lockstep scenario. And according to that scenario in 2010, that's a decade before the pandemic, um, they said a pandemic would start with a coronavirus. And here's an actual quote from that scenario. China, the Chinese government was not the only one that took extreme measures to protect its citizens from risk and exposure. During the pandemic, national leaders around the world flexed their authority and imposed airtight rules and restrictions, from the mandatory wearing of face masks to body temperature checks at the entries to communal spaces like train stations and supermarkets. Even after the pandemic faded, this more authoritarian control and oversight of citizens and their activities stuck and even intensified in order to protect themselves from the spread of increasingly global problems from pandemics and transnational terrorism to environmental crises and rising poverty, leaders around the world took a firmer grip on power. So this is these ruling groups that I mentioned. This is their scenario of how is that going to unfold and they are applauding it. They called for 20 years, have been calling for mandatory vaccines. And for the entire world's population and are still calling now for mandatory vaccine passports, the corporations, the Gates Foundation for mandatory vaccine passports all over the world, all over the world. Um, so the point here is not that the pandemic was pre-planned, but rather the plans, and this is the, the clincher, the plans were already in place for a capitalist response to any outbreak. Uh, involving corporate domination and windfall profits and an intensification of mass social control um, as the new normal. Um, one other quote here. On the eve of the outbreak, the World Economic Forum, by the way, everything I'm saying here is public knowledge. I mean, none of this is debatable, right? It's all just simply the facts. The World Economic Forum, the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security, which is funded by the Gates Foundation, uh, the Gates Foundation itself, um, a, the World Health Organization, the ex leading executives from the pharmaceutical corporations and government officials, including from the CDC and the uh, Health and Human Services, but also from the CIA and all of the Pentagon apparatus. Okay. All of them came together. This was in fall of 2019, just a few months before the pandemic. And this was the latest of all of these scenarios. Um, and this exercise was called Global Pandemic Exercise. This was literally months, three months. This was September into early October. So three months before the outbreak in Wuhan. Um, and the exercise recommended the following. At the end of it, it said, this is what we recommend. Quote, governments, international organizations, and businesses should plan for how essential corporate capabilities will be utilized during a large-scale pandemic. Governments should partner with private media corporations to develop the ability to flood media with fast, accurate, and consistent information. Trusted, trusted influential private sector employers should create the capacity to readily and reliably augment public messaging. 
manage rumors and misinformation, and apply credible information to support emergency public communications. Media companies should commit to ensuring that authoritative messages are prioritized and that false messages are suppressed, including through the use of technology. And that's exactly what happened during the pandemic and is still going on. It is transnational capitalist class and the, and the capitalist states which tell us what is the truth and what is not the truth and then censor us. And the left has played into this because the left thinks that if you criticize the official narrative coming as it is from capital to capital state, that means you're a Trump supporter. It means you're an anti-vaxxer, anti-science, uh, means you're a liber right-wing libertarian, etc. And that is a lot of nonsense. There is that. And there are conspiracy theories. But we on the left evaluate, objectively evaluate information in the context of critiquing and understanding how capitalism works and who the ruling, ruling class is. So the bottom line here is that the global health emergency facilitated this massive transfer of wealth to the rich, to the transnational capitalist class, heightened their power, their ability to surveil and control through the global police state. Um, and, you know, I had mentioned, I'll conclude with this. I had mentioned um, the incredible inequality before the pandemic, and this accelerated during the pandemic. In the United States, the ultra-wealthy increased their wealth by a trillion dollars just between March and October of 2020. While 60 million people, workers lost their job, poverty, poverty hunger, and homelessness spread uh, worldwide. In the first four months of the pandemic, billionaires' wealth increased by 27% to $10.2 trillion. The ruling group's uh, pockets of the rich were lined through price gouging, fraud, and racketeering. In the United States, for instance, private corporate hospitals jacked up their charges to patients by as much as 18 times above costs. And the industry profits rose to $100 billion in 2021. I already mentioned Pfizer's uh, profits. And $8 trillion was spent by just the European Union and the US governments in bailing out corporations during the pandemic. So the, the pandemic, the lockdown, throws the global economy into this tumble, this downward tumble, and yet states then intervene to guarantee that corporations, financial conglomerates, won't have any problem with this collapse of the global economy during the, the pandemic. It is true that in the, in the United States and some countries around the world, there was significant public support for those suddenly thrown out of work. That is true. And that came also from mass struggle. It's an unbelievable increase in mass struggle during the pandemic itself. But more significantly, 3 billion people around the world had no government support whatsoever, had to simply be unemployed and locked up in the house. And that were army and police forces that imposed this mass uh, quarantine. The vast majority of that $8 trillion simply went to corporate uh, bailouts. So I know I'm talking too much. That's the professor syndrome. But um, there's a lot more, of course, in the book on on, uh, on all of this. And if you've um, you've seen the book, you've got a you know advanced copy of the book, so you know that I go in there in that first chapter to a view. I, I go from country to country around the world, how in virtually every you know in, in every country around the world, these authoritarian uh, governments utilize the excuse of the pandemic and the quarantine to massively repress the global revolt, to massively lock people in and to massively intensify state control over their, uh, over their mobilization. Um, so that's, of course, the other big theme of the book is global civil war, the global revolt from below. 
Yeah, I, I purchased the book. I, I pre-purchased. It just hasn't come out yet. And so, yeah, I did get an advanced copy, but I urge people to. I, I love supporting uh, my guests and, and authors. And so, yeah, I make it a point. And listeners should, too, buying uh, these books. And, yeah, by the way, I, I was the first to interview Francis Boyle, the author of the Bioweapons Act in January yes. of 2020, which got 300,000 views. And that was deplatformed. Yes. And it lived on. People kept re-uploading it. Uh, and Keys actually cited my interview with Boyle in his in his book, um, and then the a Associated Press, together with Atlantic Council NATO, published a hit piece on Boyle mentioning my podcast last year. And that same week was when I got off taken off of Patreon. So you've already discussed how this this interconnection between big tech and, and big pharma and the military intelligence uh, complex. And by the way, I think this week the EU created an EU DARPA. Uh, so, something um, to that end. So now the EU is getting its own uh, DARPA. So, you know, going forward then, you know, what does the future look like? You said you're um, you're not pessimistic uh, in, in your book. Um, do, you, do you see opposition anywhere in the world to this system? Some people say that Putin and, and Russia and Xi Jinping and China are working with the Davos project. There's evidence for that. Others say that they are kicking against the World Economic Forum pricks, and there is evidence for that. Purportedly, Moscow this week said they've considered leaving the, the WTO and WHO. Um, you know, going forward, or you know, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, the, the I want to go back briefly to the, the crisis of global capitalism is breaking up states. The the post-World War II international order, the one that was consolidated in 1945 and on, it's, it's, it's tattered, you know, it's tattered, it's falling apart. And so we have this, these conflicts breaking in everywhere as the international order collapses. And we have all of these um, uh, intense um, uh, internal disputes among the, the transnational elite. But you want to remember that Russia is ruled by a state elite, a state bureaucracy, and by giant um, capitalist conglomerates, the so-called oligarchs. They have the same interest in repressing either the Russian government and the ruling class, the Chinese government and ruling class, all around the world. They have the same interest in two things, um, maximizing profit opportunities all around the world, and also keeping a clamp on rebellion from below. So in that sense, the transnational elite is completely united, but they have all of these other divisions. Um, but here's the thing, you're asking me, you know, is there opposition to all of this? On the contrary, the the start you know the causal starting point here is mass resistance over the oh, in recent decades. The global revolt um, there's been a, this massive global revolt underway since 2008. Remember that capitalist crises are times of intense social and class struggle. Um, this global revolt has been sustained despite some tragic setbacks. I mean, we all remember the how much we were inspired by uh, Occupy Wall Street, by the Greek workers uprising, by the Arab Spring, uh, by the turn to the left in Latin America. Uh, and all of this continues throughout the 2010s. Um, and what's happening now is that these mass popular struggles against the deprivations, uh, depredations of global capitalism be conjoined they're being conjoined with the fallout from the pandemic. There's some very dramatic data I came up with for that final chapter in my new book, Global, Global Civil War, that there's this new openness to anti-capitalism, to socialism. Uh, we're not there. I'm not saying we're on the verge of a socialist revolution. I wish that were the case. But in the United States, according to a poll taken 
during the pandemic, 60% of millennials and 57% of Generation Z support, quote, a complete change of our economic system away from capitalism. Worldwide, a 2020 poll taken during the pandemic showed that a majority of people around the world, 56%, believe capitalism is doing more harm than good. So this shows that there is a crisis of capitalist hegemony, a crisis of capitalist state legitimacy. Now, let's remember what happened in 2019. This revolt, the global revolt, reached a crescendo in fall of 2019. That's what I call a people spring. From Chile to Lebanon, from Iraq to India, from France to the United States, from Nigeria to South Africa to Colombia, wherever you looked around the world, mass struggles broke out everywhere, giant mass struggles. And so the pandemic was perfectly timed uh, to crush that mass revolt. The pandemic lockdown sent everyone into quarantine. Um, but I want to go back to the that 2017 to 2019 um, massive global revolt, which was then uh, continued a couple months into the pandemic. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace tracks global protests. And they tell us that from 2018 to 2020, there were significant anti-government protests in 110 countries around the world involving 230 major actions, which overthrew no less than 30 governments. In the United States, in the first six months of the pandemic, there were 1,000 strikes worker strikes. And most of these, they're not, the unions didn't encourage them. They were wildcat uh, strikes from below. And of course, we had the uprising, the anti-racist uprising after George Floyd was murdered by the police, which brought 25 million people, the single logic mass mobilization from below in US history into the streets. In India, in 2019, going into 2020, that is on the eve of declaring it a pandemic, there was a general strike of 150 million workers and farmers. Like, unfathomable. Most countries don't have anywhere near that population, 150 million. Pandemic comes along, they're violently suppressed, forced to quarantine, that fizzles out. But then, in the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, another general strike in India involving 250 million people. That's the largest labor mobilization in the history of the world. So this global revolt is truly unprecedented. You've mentioned Keyes Vanderpile, his book. I gave a back cover endorsement for that book. And he says, and I agree with him, this global revolt is unprecedented. I mean, it surpasses what we've seen earlier in history. It's global in scope. And because of the new digital technologies, there's a, a global consciousness of this revolt and global communication around it. Uh, and they all have, all of these uprisings have a common denominator an aggressive global capitalism in crisis that is pushing to the expand on the backs of masses who can take no more of this hardship and deprivation. Um, so let me just say that this that's why I, I, I titled the book Global Civil War. I see this crisis as systemic, meaning that capitalism cannot recover from it, even though it can go on for another decades and drive humanity drag humanity down with it. It's not going to recover from this deep, profound crisis. So this global revolt is going to intensify, global police state will intensify. The future uh, looks dim from one perspective, but from the other perspective, we, the mass of humanity, is on the move. We're challenging, uh, the, we're challenging the, um, the, the ruling groups uh, and they are really responding to this global revolt from below. But I titled it Global Civil War because although we're not moving into a single civil war, you know, a military confrontation between 
on the one hand, all the governments in the world, the other hand, all of the people in the world. But we're moving to a situation of permanent struggle from below against capitalist states and against capital, intensified class and social struggle. And really, I think global civil war captures this stage we are moving into. And of course, we want to remember that the backlash against the deprivations of capitalist globalization um, has also generated a right-wing response in the sense that some sectors of the ruling groups are utilizing this mass suffering and displacement of, cap of capitalist globalization to organize a base for a right-wing populist or right-wing you know, fascist populist response. So that's another thing to, that we need to uh, think about and that of course I've included in the book. This is a, a lot to digest uh, in this hour. And again, I recommend um, both books, Global Civil War and Global um, Police State. Um, I, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I, I think we, we, you know, I was going to ask you about your worst case scenario. I, I do feel we're moving into this dystopian science fiction like system. Um, I mean, I'm already experienced getting, experiencing it, getting deplatformed in so many ways. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any closing uh, or final thoughts for us. Um, yeah, I mean, it's easy to become pessimistic, but I think we need to avoid the apocalyptic scenarios. I mean, the worst case scenario here is that six mass extinction is already underway. Um, we know that in the future, because of the you know, ecological collapse in different regions of the world, there's going to be more hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of climate refugees. Yes, we are moving into the, the future. One part of the future looks very uh, dystopic, but we don't want to fall into this apocalyptic um, pessimism because that really disarms us. It demobilizes us. And the vast majority of people around the world uh, desperately are in these desperate struggles for survival. Um, so it's important to see that the ruling groups might be on the move. It might appears that they have the initiative. In some respects, they did with the pandemic. They utilized the pandemic to regain the initiative from the global revolt from below. That's what I've tried to make clear in the, you know, our last, the last discussion. But we want to remember that in the end, the ruling groups are reactive. They cannot resolve this crisis. They are rudderless. They don't know where to go with this. They're desperate. They might not appear, you know, on the television and corporate media that they are desperate, that they're confused, but they're, they're very desperate. We're at the, the whole global economy is on the brink of another collapse. Um, you know, this spiraling inflation and unprecedented debt and unprecedented financial speculation are, you know, are simply signals that we are on the verge of another global financial collapse and the ruling groups are not able to control this, um, you know, despite appearances. Uh, so there's reason to be hopeful. And that's a good place to, to leave it. Where are the best uh, places, websites, uh, you know, for people to find you uh, online? Well, I have a, um, a Facebook um, professional account, which is, um, I don't remember the exact URL, but the main thing is if you just in Facebook plug in um, William I. Robinson Sociologist, I have a, a blog, a Facebook blog, and everything, all of my articles that I publish I, I, and interviews I put up there, of course, I'll put this one up there. And then I don't have the URL for this, but if you just go to University of California at Santa Barbara, then just follow to sociology, faculty, and click on me. I have a professional website where I have there uh, published links to my uh, articles, but also I have PDFs of about 30, 40, 50 different articles uh, and other information. 
and you're you're also on Twitter. People can find you there. Yes. Uh, wh when does the new book uh, come out in physical or digital form? Yeah, it was supposed to be out in February. I finished it in early February 2021, but because of um, supply side bottlenecks at the printer, it's pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. But now I'm told that absolutely, definitely, they're wrapping it up at the printer and it should go out in the mail to people that pre-order uh, by the first to the second week of June, no, no later. So three weeks from now, we'll be out. All right. I most definitely, again, recommend listeners get uh, Global Police State as well as Global uh Civil War in whichever format, physical uh, or uh, digital. And uh, yes, uh, thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you so much for, for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com. And I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.